You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The assumption that CCS is going to be applied globally has been proven to be wrong for a decade. The fossil fuel system has reached the limits to growth, and the renewable system is a very long way away from them. For March 16th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Everyone, even casual observers, understands that storage will play an important role in the energy transition as we move from conventional thermal power plants that can be dispatched at will to energy systems predominantly supplied by variable renewables. But the scholarship to date on how much and what kinds of storage and when it will be needed has been pretty limited. Much of it has relied on very gross, high-level modeling based on highly questionable assumptions. And as a result, some of it has produced profoundly absurd results, which have been amplified in the press, like claims that an electrical grid largely powered by renewables would require enough storage to power the entire grid for six straight weeks. Fortunately, some better modeling work has been undertaken by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, part of the U.S. Department of Energy. A multi-year project called the Storage Futures Study considers when and where a range of storage technologies are cost-competitive, depending on how they're operated and what services they provide for the grid. Leveraging NREL's energy storage projects, data, and tools, it explores the role and impact of relevant and emerging energy storage technologies in the U.S. power sector across a range of potential future cost and performance scenarios through the year 2050. In this episode, we're joined by Nate Blair, principal investigator of the study, to explain its findings and how their modeling was done. Nate is the group manager of the Distributed Systems and Storage Analysis Group at NREL and draws upon almost 30 years of experience in energy systems modeling and energy analysis, including nearly two decades of work at NREL, where he held roles developing the System Advisor Model and PV Watt System Modeling Tools, as well as the Reed's Electric Grid Planning Model. He has deep expertise in this type of modeling and is a regular listener to the show under NREL's site license, so I'm very pleased to have him join us for today's discussion. Then, in the news segment, we'll recognize a major announcement to shut down another fleet of coal-fired power plants in the U.S., we'll update the progress of an upstart flow battery company, we'll see how far behind and over budget the last remaining nuclear power plant to be built in the U.S. is, and how the U.S. Department of Energy plans to bail out currently operating nukes, and we'll review a number of new projects and plans by the Biden administration covering everything from funding for EV charging stations to decarbonizing the U.S. government. I'll also have a brief comment about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But before we go to the interview, announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group licensee, the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. As we reviewed in News Item 5 of Episode 163, Colorado has really emerged as a leading state in the energy transition. So we're thrilled to have their utility regulator listening to the show. Welcome. And now, our conversation with Nate Blair, recorded February 18th, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Nate, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Happy to be here. You and your colleagues have just wrapped up a big seven-part study on the future of storage, which we're going to explore in some depth today. So to get us started, why don't you briefly describe the study and what its objectives were? 
Sure. Well, first, NREL has a long history of doing future-oriented studies, looking at specific technologies or recently integrated topics like electrification. And with the broad research interest in energy storage, combined with recent and anticipated rapid growth in solar PV and wind, there are a number of questions about not only how much storage will likely be on the grid, but what type, duration of storage is likely, and what that storage will be doing as we move towards higher levels of renewables. We're also interested in trying to pull a number of threads together on what technologies are likely and what those technology costs might be in the future. Another interesting facet of energy storage broadly that we would like to explore more in the future is also the interactions between grid storage and electric vehicles and consumer electronics. We haven't done too much of that in this study, but there's always room for more studies. Batteries are really unique as an energy storage technology as there are these three large sectors, EVs, consumer electronics, and grid storage, all working to grow and refine that technology. And our hope is that the output of this project is both educational and can help decision makers broadly understand what the drivers are for energy storage growth going forward in the electric sector in the U.S. Great. Well, let's go straight to what I think is your headline finding, which is that storage is set for some really significant growth in the coming years, isn't it? That's right. So we have about 23 gigawatts of pumped hydro storage on the system. Some of it has been there for many decades, and that has really helped the grid. But due to rapid technology cost declines for batteries in particular, and the growing potential value of energy storage on the grid, we could see hundreds of gigawatts of storage in the future. And under all the scenarios we looked at, so we looked at 20 odd scenarios, even in the most conservative case, there's a dramatic growth in energy storage as the least cost option to help out the grid. In the modeling that we did using our REEDS capacity expansion model, starting from today's base of about 23 gigawatts now, the scenario projects a total increase of anywhere from about 6x to about 150 gigawatts in the least deployment case to about 8x, about 680 gigawatts or almost 2,000 gigawatt hours in the most aggressive case, assuming the lowest trajectory for battery costs. And so for battery storage, we see a capacity growing at least 3,000 times larger by 2050. Wow. But that's starting from a very low base currently. Well, I mean, even if you look at the low case, as you were saying, a 6x expansion in total storage capacity is really remarkable. I mean, that's not a finding that I've seen presented before. So although there are a lot of different kinds of storage technologies and storage services, as we'll discuss in a bit, diurnal storage, meaning daily or storage duration of 12 hours or less, really seems to be the clear winner going forward, doesn't it? Yeah, I think particularly at the point in grid expansion that we're in. Our study is really the first comprehensive national analysis evaluating diurnal storage against other flexibility resources. And we find that the diurnal storage is extremely competitive on an economic basis, particularly as we see deployment of solar PV growing. Hmm. We find significant market potential for diurnal storage across a variety of scenarios using different cost performance assumptions for solar, wind, PV, and natural gas. So no matter kind of what that mix looks like, we're seeing growth in solar and we're seeing 
anticipating growth in energy storage as well. So depending on the trajectory, we get up to really, really high ranges of gigawatts. And I think one thing that's important in thinking about diurnal storage is that in our definition goes from anywhere from maybe two hours of duration all the way up to 10 hours of duration. So you need time to charge the storage and discharge it in one day. And as we go towards higher and higher levels of renewables, we move from this kind of two-hour storage meeting some peaks today up to 10 hours of storage getting deployed optimally as we get out to, say, 70% clean energy or variable renewable energy. Okay. Well, before we get into the detailed findings of these papers, I think we should probably take a moment here just to explain a few key concepts that were used in them. And the first is that energy storage technologies must be described both in terms of their power capacity, which is measured in kilowatts, and energy capacity, which is measured in kilowatt hours, to assess their costs and their potential use cases. So would you explain that a bit? Sure. I think that's a really important point. And we have a nice graph in our report that tries to locate technologies on kind of an XY coordinate system. But let's start with the extremes. A pumped hydro system has a large capital cost for the dam, powerhouse, etc. But in the right location, buying or purchasing, I guess, in quotes, extra reservoir space is cheap. So the same with buying more cavern space for a compressed air energy storage system. You can get a slightly larger cavern, so you've got more hours of duration, but adding that is relatively cheap. Conversely, there are some existing battery options that are cheap to scale up in terms of the amount of power they can produce for a short time, like a flywheel, but these technologies do not scale well to longer durations. Lithium-ion batteries are attractive because compared to some of these other options with current costs, they are cheaper both on the power vector and on the duration side. Interesting. Yeah, I would just add that it is important to remember as we think about this that a number of these technologies are still emerging. So their costs today are uncertain and where they're going could really impact and potentially be cheaper than batteries. So in our study, we've talked a lot about batteries, particularly for diurnal storage, but one of these other technologies could come in and have a dramatic cost reduction, as batteries have done also. Yeah, it's an important point to make. It is a very dynamic space. There's a lot of different technologies out there that can do storage, a lot of different kinds of storage. I mean, even just within batteries, there's dozens of kinds of chemistries. And so I think you're right that in the near term, we can be very confident about what lithium-ion batteries can do and how much they cost. But as you get farther and farther into the future, especially if you're talking like decades into the future, we really have no idea what kinds of technologies might be the cheapest then or what their capabilities will be or anything really. That said, I think that you've done a very respectable job of modeling what we know today and what we could reasonably expect in the coming years. So let's go a little deeper now and start talking about some of those details. So your study began with a paper led by Paul Denholm, who actually last joined us in episode 58, that presented a framework for understanding how storage will expand and evolve in the U.S. power system. So would you explain that framework for our listeners, kind of just to set the groundwork here? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think this is a really interesting piece of the overall study because it sort of sets the stage for what are the drivers 
for wanting storage to come into the grid and kind of what are the size of those different markets for those drivers and when are they likely to occur? So what we're seeing prior to say 2010, you had this pumped hydro capacity on the grid, mostly eight to 12 hour duration, providing peak capacity, energy time shifting, operating reserves, a little bit of all of those pieces. But what we see kind of going forward is that the first market where we're already seeing batteries and other technologies being deployed is for operating reserves. So that's roughly less than an hour. And then as we get more solar on the grid, the solar tends to narrow the afternoon peaks in the U.S. And so those narrower peaks are more attractive for batteries in particular because the durations are shorter. So that's kind of a two to six hour period. So you're charging perhaps off of solar during the day and then discharging to help reduce those peaks on the grid in the afternoon. We call that phase two. And then as we move past that, we end up doing energy time shifting, which is more kind of four to 12 hour durations. And you get basically even more of this solar. And as you kind of keep chopping off the peaks, as it were, you kind of start to level out the load across the day. And so that's really energy time shifting. And then the last phase is multi-day seasonal capacity beyond 10 or 12 hours of duration out to hundreds hours of duration. And that's a little unclear what the size of that market is in the paper. We said it could be anywhere from zero to hundreds of gigawatts. And that's because like we were just talking about, there's kind of a range of technologies that could play there. There's a number of other flexibility options, demand response, et cetera, that, that could also mitigate some of those needs as well. And to be clear, those phases of energy storage deployment, they're overlapping. They're somewhat regional. So certain regions might be kind of ahead on that curve versus other regions. And it's going to be interesting to see as we get more and more solar and wind on the grid, how that works out. The, the modeling that we did sort of supports those four phases thought piece in the sense that the modeling starts building two hours batteries, then four hours, then six hours, then eight hours, and then more 10 hours. And you can see that in the results. So that supports the framework. Great. So even though you just explained it all perfectly clearly, I'm just going to restate it. So we got four phases here. Operating reserves, typically under an hour duration. Peaking capacity, typically in that sort of two to six hour range. Energy time shifting in that four to 12 hour range. And then multi-day or seasonal capacity, sort of at 12 hours or more. And again, as you pointed out, these are not necessarily sequential phases. Different things can be done at different times and different places. All right. Well, I think it's also worth explaining up front here that different kinds of storage are used to provide different services. Some storage technologies provide what's called ancillary services and wholesale power markets, which includes things like inertia balancing and regulation of frequency and voltage. And those services have very short durations, typically in the seconds or even milliseconds range, in the minutes at most. And we've done some previous shows on the technical aspects of ancillary services. 
storage technologies that support voltage on the low voltage distribution system, which goes to our homes, or that optimize the use of distribution system components, oftentimes known as distribution services, have durations that are typically in the seconds to minutes range. And then going a little farther out than that in terms of duration, storage technologies that might help relieve congestion on the high voltage transmission grid, or that optimize the use of existing transmission infrastructure to avoid having to upgrade it, what's been known by the term of art, non-wires alternatives, are typically known as transmission services, and those typically have durations in the minutes to hours. And then services that just provide energy, like kilowatt hours, or that stand ready to inject more energy into the grid, known as capacity services, typically have durations ranging from minutes to over 12 hours. And I think this is the category of energy and capacity that is what most lay people have in mind when they think of storage, because that's where storage is providing services like peak shaving and time-shifting energy, like storing up solar generation during the day and dispatching it back to the grid after the sun goes down. And all those services are for managing the flow of power on the grid. And then, once the power is delivered to the consumer, there are many kinds of additional end-use services on the customer side of the utility meter that energy consumers may want from storage, like refining power quality, which might be needed by very sensitive equipment, maintaining reliability and resistance, like a battery backup system for when there's a grid outage, or maintaining costs, like doing grid power price arbitrage to use power when it's cheap, or avoid drawing power off the grid when it's expensive, or even avoiding demand charges on a commercial utility tariff. So there's really this wide range of services that storage provides and a correspondingly wide range of storage technologies that provide it, isn't there? Like, can you explain how these different kinds of storage are best suited to provide each of these different categories of service? Sure. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's attractive about batteries is they can provide all of those services, basically. And technologies like hydrogen and pumped hydro storage can provide some of the longer duration services too, either by powering a fuel cell to produce electricity or by burning a combustion turbine. Additionally, ancillary services could be provided by flywheels and ultra capacitors. So very short duration distribution services can be provided by flywheels, rooftop solar inverters. Transmission services could be provided by pumped hydro, compressed air energy storage. End-use applications are typically served by batteries now or generators, particularly for backup power. Energy and capacity services can be provided by pumped hydro, pumped heat, thermal storage technologies, hydrogen, and gravity storage. And the value of each of these service categories saturates and goes to zero at some point. And the grid services piece is likely much smaller than the peaking and time shifting markets. Hmm. And so, so you hear a lot now about some of these grid services markets, but we anticipate that as we continue to march forward and have more solar and wind on the grid, that those markets will get saturated pretty quickly. And I would say that sometimes some of the technologies that provide longer duration can also work in the short duration market as well. So you'll see pumped hydro plants already coming online to meet three or four hour peaks in the Western US, even though they can provide 12, 14 hours of duration potentially. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this point about how the value of each of these service categories can saturate and go to zero at some point. I think it's a point that's just not 
Well understood. Even in like formal modeling, I've seen some studies that basically said, well, for example, if you have an electric vehicle connected to a charger operating in concert with hundreds or thousands of other chargers, that those things can be controlled as a grid resource to provide ancillary services on a given wholesale market. And that's true. If you could turn down or turn up the power draw of thousands of EV chargers at will, you could certainly do things like affect voltage or provide other sort of regulation services on a grid. However, I think there's some very gross modeling that's been done for that to say, well, you know, the first 100 vehicles can get paid X for providing that service. Let's just scale that up to millions of vehicles, at which point it's like, eh, no, that's not how this works. That ancillary services market is actually really thin and can get saturated pretty quickly. And in that case, the millionth vehicle to provide that service is getting nowhere near paid what the first vehicle was getting paid to provide the same service. That's a really good point, Chris. And this wasn't part of our study, but there's a really large battery that got put on the grid that I'm sure you've covered elsewhere in Australia. Right. And my understanding is that the, the ancillary service market was quite robust. And then once that battery was installed, the prices in that market collapsed. And so I think that's just another example of what you're saying. And I think one of the pieces with the modeling that everyone struggles with is how do we basically model all of the market issues and all of the other potential factors on the distribution side and the transmission side all at once Mm -hmm. to get the really accurate answer. So... When I started doing this a couple decades ago, you didn't worry about the transportation market when you were modeling the electricity market. And now you have to be thinking about several of these pieces in conjunction. Sure. And if you think forward, where is this all going to be like 20 years from now? What if at that point, everyone is driving an EV? Everyone is using a heat pump instead of a a conventional natural gas or oil-fired HVAC system or what have you. And what if all of these devices are capable of being controlled dynamically in response to grid conditions? Now you have just a massively more complex thing that you're trying to evaluate where all these different categories of services start with the first device getting paid a certain amount and end with the millionth device getting paid far less. <laughs> yep. It's really complicated. Yep, definitely complicated. We did an electrification futures study, which maybe we should reference somewhere. Yeah. In that, it was, hey, we're assuming a certain amount of EV adoption and assuming a certain amount of air source heat pump adoption, and then looking at what the grid would build out in response to that. And that's kind of the first step along that path. But having those virtual power plants and virtual demand response options available to the grid manager is is another level of modeling that we're working towards, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about seasonal storage because it's a big and not terribly well-defined topic, as you discuss in one of the papers in the study, appropriately titled, The Challenge of Defining Long-Duration Energy Storage. 
That paper helpfully points out that long duration can mean different things in different contexts. In one context, for example, 10 hours of storage might be an acceptable definition of duration. But in another context, the duration can be thought of as its ability to provide firm capacity and earn capacity credit to provide resiliency which is a topic all unto itself. And those are pretty different concepts. But to avoid going down that rabbit hole, <laughs> the paper asserts that on summer peaking grids in many parts of the United States, quote, four-hour duration storage services can provide high-capacity credit. What does that mean? Oh, that's a good question. So capacity credit is the result of a rather complex calculation to determine how much of the of the nameplate capacity. So when you you install, a, say, a PV system or a battery system, it says, okay, this can output 10 megawatts or 20 megawatts. So that's the capacity, but how often can you count on it? How often can you plan on it being available? And as the system builds more and more solar PV, the next unit of PV gets a little less capacity credit because the next unit overlaps with the already installed PV. So it's a bit of a dynamic metric as well. Right. And the same phenomena happens with battery storage. The system operator adds up all of that capacity together to decide if there's enough capacity available for what they anticipate the load will be. So hey, we're heading into a peak day in the summer. We have X amount of capacity on the system, but we have X amount of capacity, not just on the nameplate, but including the fraction of credit that we think should be assigned to that. How likely is that to be there when we need it? Yeah. So that's kind of where the capacity credit calculation comes from. And so the definition of what long duration means is likely a function then of the local conditions. So how long of a capacity can you count on this particular resource for if you've got five of them and you've got X amount of other things going on in the system. And so so I think the four-hour capacity credit seems pretty strong. And if you look at the regulations for some of the major system operators in the U.S., by and large, they've kind of settled on saying, hey, we will give you four hours of credit for these kinds of devices if you put them on our grid. So there's also a compensation piece from the markets that's important here in some of these definitions as well. But at the end of the day, I think everyone can visualize that we're adding up what's available and making sure that it's more than enough to meet the load that's coming. It's just the the difficulty in the details is with the calculation of how much of that capacity we should actually count on for how long. And that gets into some math. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really worthwhile to understand that because I think, again, the casual observer would say, oh, well, long duration means just that. It just means like something that goes more than 12 hours. But you're saying that that's not at all how to understand duration. The duration is actually a very conditional concept based on the totality of resources in a system and particularly the economics of where you can earn a capacity credit and how much and that that itself is a dynamic calculation. So it's really important to understand that, that duration is not just about how long a device can dispatch energy. Yeah, and I think adding on to that, there's the duration and then there's the value of that duration in the grid. And right. I think how much of that capacity is needed and can contribute towards meeting the load is 
where the system operator really starts to get into some details. Right, because even if you had a device that could easily discharge energy for 12 hours, if it can only earn a capacity credit for doing it for four, then, <laughs> right. then it's really in competition with other devices that can just dispatch for four, right? Yeah, exactly. And if the market won't value anything beyond the fourth hour, how are you going to recoup your investment. Now, exactly. it might be that if our grid is at 80, 90, 95% solar and wind power at some point in the future, then the system operators say, oh, geez, we definitely need to pay you because we definitely think we're going to need to be able to provide power for these longer periods north of 10, 12 hours up to 100. And you see a lot of pilot plants coming out today on the long duration side with many, many hours of potential generation. And I think those are great. And that's really great to move forward on that front. But currently, they won't be compensated for all those hours in most markets. Right. So again, another very dynamic kind of way of valuing something. Yep. Uh, so if you see a model that says, well, this device can dispatch power for X hours today, and we're going to evaluate it that today, and then we're going to value it the same way 20 years from now, you know, eh, that's wrong. There's actually a dynamic curve there somewhere, and it's going to get valued differently as the total character of the grid evolves. All right. Well, the paper goes on to say that at least in some locations, there is currently no inherent need for storage with at least 10 hours of duration to provide system-level resource adequacy. And it goes on to explain that this is a bit of a squishy target because the capacity credit, as we were just saying, can vary depending on the region, the share of renewables on a system, the penetration of storage in the system, and the capacity credit variations that can happen in models at very high penetrations of renewables, as you just said a moment, and fair enough. But still, the finding that some parts of the U.S. might not need more than 10-hour storage systems to provide system-level resource adequacy is a really interesting one. I don't think I've heard that before. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Southern Company's Georgia Power, one of the staunchest defenders of coal power in the U.S., has thrown in the towel on coal, citing continued economic challenges for coal power, as well as various other aspects of the ongoing energy transition. According to the three-year integrated resource plan it submitted to state regulators on January 31st, the utility plans to close all of its coal-fired power plants, comprising about 3.5 gigawatts of capacity, and replace them with 2.4 gigawatts of natural gas capacity from existing plants owned by Southern Company, as well as up to 6 gigawatts of renewables and 1 gigawatt of energy storage. The company also plans to develop additional distributed energy resources in its service area. Twelve of the coal units would be closed by 2028, and the remaining two units in the fleet would be closed by 2035. The Georgia PSC, the state's utility regulator, will hold hearings on the IRP over the next several months and vote on it later this year. Item 2. As part of its IRP, Georgia Power revealed that it plans to install a novel flow battery from Form Energy to test the technology's suitability for providing long-duration energy storage. Later this year, Georgia Power is planning to submit to regulators. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.